You've landed on The Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us here every other week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, saying I hope your holidays are going well, everybody. We've uh, had a bit of a time over here at The Substance through house issues and technical issues. Editor Dave had his computer kind of die and had to get a new one. We had uh, a big disaster in our house and... Both of us had sicknesses and all this stuff, but we are we are back on track. Thank you for bearing with us. Thankfully, we were able to not miss that drop last time. So, but we are back on track with a regularly scheduled episode. Back to something that we haven't been in for a while. We are we are back on the justice kick. So, if you're new here to the substance, we are a Christian variety show where every other week we talk for about an hour. We have usually have a guest who is smart or interesting, talented, involved in something that we think has value. And then we talk for about an hour about topics related to faith, culture, and the arts. Previous guests include folks like Karen Swallow Pryor, Robert P. Jones, and campaign founders Justin Gibney and Sho Baraka and Jamar Tisby. On this episode, we're joined by Matt Martins. Matt is a lawyer. He has a theology degree. He is somebody who, when you look at their resume and their profile, I got very excited about somebody who looks like him, who comes from where he comes from, has the pedigree he has, writing seriously and biblically and thoughtfully on justice. Uh, We talk about this towards the end of the episode, but I mean, I, I really appreciated his heart on him being a friend to the white conservative evangelicalism to whom he is trying to get the the truth of loving neighbor and just the truth of the brokenness of systems. We've talked about this since the beginning of the show that it's it's not only important to make sure we are individually acting rightly and, and thinking and living ethically, that we are collectively as individual churches or municipalities or as, as a nation that we are we are seeking to act rightly. And I, I love Matt's passion for this. He put a lot of work in this. This is hundreds of pages. And um, we talk about this in the show too, that it's, it's put out by Crossway. This is a resource, his book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. This is really nicely positioned, in my opinion, to be a hopefully palatable resource to folks who really need to hear these things, who may be closed off to hearing it from other avenues. So I was very excited to have Matt on. Um, it was a really encouraging conversation, and I'm excited to see, um, hopefully, this this book, this resource out in the world, do some good. So here's my conversation with Matt Martins on reforming criminal justice. Matt Martins, welcome to The Substance. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad we were able to. We have been this happens occasionally with guests, and I always feel bad. We have been playing back and forth Twitter tag on the scheduling for quite some time, so glad we were able to make this happen. Well, my fault probably as much as anybody, so uh, thanks. Glad we could make it work. The end of the year, like the last quarter, just gets hard. Yeah. Um, really kind of from September on, but really, yeah, the last three months of the year is is a challenge sometimes. So Too much vacation. <laughs> or not enough, depending on uh, um, on your perspective there. So yeah, um, I'm excited about this. I think I started following you um, a while back when I saw that you were working on 
a book, Reforming Criminal Justice, and your background. And I'm interested in talking about that, uh, your background rather being both having a theology degree as well as a law degree and a career practicing law. But I'd love to hear, since I'm not, I, I found you through the book, I'd love to hear about your own personal um, what's your um, social religious background? Where did where did Matt Martins come from for the folks uh, who are coming to you fresh? Well, Matt Martins came from a Christian family. I grew up uh, as a Christian. I you know people ask me when did you become a Christian? I mean I can point to a prayer as a child, you know the sinner's prayer. But the reality is was I heard the gospel from a young age and don't remember a time when I didn't believe. My parents were faithful Christians. My dad was a pastor of a Baptist church in New Jersey for 36 years. And I have been a Baptist my whole life. I probably had a period after moving to the South as an adult where I started to wonder uh, about this Baptist thing, not because I had a different view about believers baptism, but because my experience of being a Baptist, Baptist in the South was very different than my experience of being a Baptist in the Northeast. So I had this, that's probably part of what prompted seminary uh, to some degree to try to sort through some questions. And I came out the other side more conservative and more orthodox theologically than I they started and more committed than ever to being a Baptist. So tell me with that background, your book is on criminal justice. You have a law degree. Where did in the this in your spiritual heritage, what what role did justice play? I know that different uh sects of the Baptist church have had different uh, roles in history in various ways, but what, what was the role? How did you understand justice formatively? It's, it's interesting. I think one of the things that's really influenced my thinking on justice is my understanding of sanctification as part of salvation. And I write about this in the book because I think I, I grew up in what I'd call dispensational world uh, of Christianity, and now I live uh, more in reformed world, as I call it. And so that's been interesting, having spent a significant part of my life in dispensational world and then moving into a, an entirely different stream in some ways of evangelicalism and seeing the contrast between the two. And one of the contrasts I have observed is there's an interesting underemphasis on sanctification as being part of salvation, in my observation, in reformed world. And, and I think that that's a, a failure, a flaw, and, and I think it influences practically how we think about justice, that we fail to see that just living made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit is part of the gift of salvation that God graciously provides in Jesus Christ. And so that's really why I start the book the way I do with talking about that moment when that sort of dawned on me that what God provides for us in Christ is not merely uh, eternal avoidance of damnation, but that God is redeeming the world now. And that means in part, he's making me into a new person even now who will live justly. And I think that that was a, a really pivotal moment in my thinking about Christianity that maybe sadly didn't dawn on me until I was 35. Uh, but it's really influenced in a significant way, the way I think about justice. No, I, I appreciate that very much. And another thing before we get into the meat of it, one of the things that I always like to ask authors when we have them on the show is um, about their dedications. Yours reads 
for this particular book. For my children, may they know the one who does justly, loves mercy, and walked humbly for our salvation. Tell So how many kids do you have? I have three kids, uh, two boys and a girl. So what does – and I, I really love when there's a little bit more. When it's not just to a name, there's a little bit of a message there. So yeah. what, what's the age ranges approximately of your kids? 24 to 16. So I mean I imagine the last few years, the last – five, six, seven years, it's been quite a time. Tell me how how the discussion's been in the Martins household or wherever the kids are with everything going on in the world as, as it pertains to justice. Well, I tried to talk with them about the topics that are in my book while I was writing the book for the older kids who were in college or, or off into professional life at the time. That meant more talking to them during vacation when we'd get together. Uh, for my youngest would actually talk about it at dinner and wanted them to understand what their dad thinks about this. Uh, I don't want to leave some things unsaid, um, both about what I think scripture teaches about justice, but also what I think about where our country's done well and where our country's done poorly. Um, I don't want to provide a pessimistic or a, a cynical view of our country, but I don't want to provide a Pollyannish one either. So I've tried to make sure they knew what their dad thought uh, on that. And, and ultimately, as you see in the dedication, I want it, I want them to be uh, committed followers of Jesus. But I know that ultimately that is their decision and the spirits work. I can't decide for them. As one of my seminary professors said, there are no spiritual grandchildren. Every generation must be born again for itself. Um, Absolutely. So what would you say kind of as the foundation of the book and just in general, what is the relationship in your mind theologically between justice and God's love? Well, I start with the idea of divine simplicity the doctrine of divine simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity being that God does not have parts. God is a whole in all he is. And so there is not part of God that is just and another part of God that is loving. And when you mix it all together, you get a just and loving God. There is not, it is not that God does some just things and God does some loving things. And so when you put it together, you have a God who does justice and, and loves. The, the doctrine of divine simplicity is meant to capture the idea that God is just and God is love in all he does. He is loving in all he does and he is just in all he does, which means that justice and love are not in conflict or in tension. They may be in our minds as finite human beings, but they're, they're not ultimately in tension that God is both just and loving at the same time. And so what I really was trying to explore in the book is how do you reconcile those concepts, which to us at times feel inconsistent? And the short answer is that I believe in agreement with Augustine, that justice is giving to everyone their due and that what people are due, scripture teaches, what people are owed is our love, which I think is a profound concept because I tend to think of love as discretionary, as you're lucky if you get my love, right? And, <laughs> uh, 
And that's not what scripture teaches, that it is our obligation to love our neighbor as ourself. It's our moral obligation. Our neighbors have a claim on our love. They are owed our love. They are due our love. And so justice is giving everyone their due. And what people are due is my love. And Christians understand love to mean seeking the good of another. And so to do justly, uh, meaning to love, is to seek the good of others. And what that will look like in different contexts uh, will differ. Um, and what it will look like for particular people um, in particular situations will differ. Um, what, it, what seeking the good of a crime victim looks like will be somewhat different than seeking the good of a crime perpetrator. But the key point is that my obligation is to love them both, is to seek their good. It's not to seek, their, it's not to seek the wrongdoer's harm. It's to seek his good. Now, that may mean punishing and usually will mean punishing, but it's punishing with the goal of seeking his or her good. And I think that's a, that mindset, that orientation, as we think about punishing wrongdoers is critical to getting justice right for the Christian. I, I completely agree. One of the things, just kind of generally, I'm curious about, as you've done this work, as you've spoken up in various circles, what sorts of responses have you gotten from various circles? It's interesting. My dad read the whole book. Longtime Baptist pastor, you said? Longtime Baptist pastor, PhD, um, seminary degree. Uh, he read the whole book during the editing process. And he said to me, he said, the pushback you're going to get is your relentless insistence that we have to love wrongdoers. And he wasn't expressing his disagreement. He was ex predicting what I would get. Humorously, probably from people of faith whose theology is based on wrongdoers receiving good things. Uh, I've had, uh, I mean, there is something ironic, right, about the fact that we as Christians can be resistant um, to the notion of our universal obligation to love, uh, you know, that we can that we can be resistant to the idea of pardoning wrongdoers who repent. Um, it is ironic because if anyone should understand that, we should understand that as Christians. And it's interesting. I mean, I've had people, um, you know, flat out tell me that there's no obligation to love enemies, and I'm kind of like, well, there, there's a there's a verse, there's a verse on that. <laughs> like um, <laughs> we talked about, oh, what does the Bible have to say about technology or right. mixed families or this and that? It's like, okay, like we can intuit this and that, right. but Jesus says. Love your enemies. Yeah, like, like there's literally like red words on this one, uh, you know. And so, but I mean, I've had people just tell me I was, you know, just wrong on the notion that we have to love criminal wrongdoers, uh, as opposed to have a very fair debate about what that looks like. You know, that's something that Christians could, though they agree on the obligation to do good, could disagree about what the good looks like. I've been surprised at times where I have people, you know, affirmatively arguing to me that you don't have to love the wrongdoers. They've affirmatively argue that that obligation to love your neighbor is not applicable to the role of government officials, that there's sometimes the verse invoked is, um, you know, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so people, some people see that as creating this dichotomy where you live your public life in a different way with a different ethic than as a, than as a private person. And I don't, I don't read scripture that way. I understand our obligation is to love even in enforcing the law. I think Jesus made that plain when he said the whole law of the old Testament, which was included, a, was included within that was a criminal law. 
And, and he said that whole law was summed up in the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. So I don't, I don't see a distinction or I don't draw a, a line and say there's some area of my life or some people in my life that I get not to love. My obligation is to love. And the hard question is working out what that love looks like. Well, yeah, because that's where it goes from being theology or an interesting discussion to costing something, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I was it's funny. I was talking to my dad this morning. I usually talk to him on Wednesdays on the ride into work. And and he made he had listened to a sermon recently on this topic. And the, the, the speaker had been speaking about the idea that, you know, if you love those who love you, as Jesus said, who cares? Like even the tax collectors do that. And you know, it's like loving, loving crime victims. Like, well, of course we love crime victims. That's our, that's our instinct. That's easy to do. Mm-hmm. The world does that. What's hard to do is love the enemy, love the unjust aggressor, love the wrongdoer, mm-hmm. uh, love the criminal, you know, and that's what I think sets Christians apart is that we recognize that they're both image bearers and both entitled to our love. No, I mean, absolutely. So your first two chapters both deal directly with social justice. And I'm curious from your vantage point with your history and your experience, what do you make of the both political and religious factions who have made social justice in and of itself something to be feared or ousted from the midst or demonized or things like that? What do you make of that? I think that there's a, to some degree, a definitional problem and to some degree, there is uh, an ideological issue that's buried in some of the language that can be scary to people. And so when I talk about social justice, I try to make clear in the book, I'm not talking about progressive politics. I'm not talking about critical theory. I'm not trying to import through my use of the term uh, ideological baggage that it carries today that some people might say, well, that's actually not just and I don't you know, I agree with that. And it, I'm, I'm not trying to fight that fight. What I'm trying to do when I use the term social justice is capture the idea that we can commit injustices against each other one on one and we can commit injustices against each other by structuring society in a way that unjustly, unfairly disadvantages other people. And that idea, that concept of social justice, that use of the term has a long history in Christian thought. Uh, social justice is, is specifically included in Catholic social teaching. There's Baptists like Carl F. H. Henry who are using the term regularly or John Stott. And, and what I want to do is try to capture that idea that, that society can be structured in unjust ways and one of the ways we structure society is through the criminal law. And so we need to think about not just, well, I'm not committing a crime against you. That's great. I, you know, I, appreciate, the, <laughs> I appreciate the fact right, that you're not robbing me, um, but you could be organizing society in a way that allows other people to rob me, mm-hmm. that, that facilitates and uh, legalizes and authorizes robbery. And so that would itself also be an injustice. And I want us to think at that systemic or structural level, uh, as Isaiah said in uh, chapter 10 of, of his book, you know, woe to those who issue unjust decrees, that, that you, can, you can issue laws or decrees in a way that are unjust. And there's a woe to them just as much as those who rob you at gunpoint in an alley. Why do you think, or what's your position on people who identify strongly 
as Christian in of, of the conservative variety, why can it be so difficult for folks like that, which is the uh, that's where I came from? Why is it so hard sometimes to think about things in that systemic societal view? Because I mean, I grew up like depravity was hit hard. I I got a lot of that. But then whenever people would bring up, oh, like these systems have issues that are flawed, that are harming people. It's like, no, 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 no. Like that's, that's not something we can entertain. And so where do you think the disconnect is? I wonder whether some of it is an emphasis or a description of salvation as being almost entirely, if not entirely individual and not, uh, and not cosmic. Um, again, when I, I mentioned earlier that sort of transformational moment when I was 35 and I suddenly understood salvation as cosmic, that God is making all things new. Someone recently asked me in some event I was at about my understanding of the gospel. And I said, when I sat in the membership interview in my church and the pastor asked me to explain the gospel, I said, behold, he who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new. That right there is the best news you will ever hear, that there is somebody on the throne and he is making all things new. Now, that means in part that he's making me new through Christ, but he's making way more than me new. He's making everything new. But but once you recognize that everything needs to be made new, that means everything's broken. Uh, uh, it's not just that I am a sinner, though I am a sinner. It's that my sin broke everything. You know, when, when you see in Genesis 3 that God curses the dirt, I mean, yes, there's there's a lot of senses in which that's like, you know, yes, it caused thorns to grow or whatever. But I, I, I love that reference to the dirt because it's like, if you curse the dirt, everything between here and the dirt is cursed. It's like, yep. if, if it's cursed all the way down to the dirt, then there's nothing that's not cursed because there's really nothing lower than dirt. And and I think we fail to recognize at times that the fact we don't emphasize enough, I think sometimes in Christian circles, in conservative Christian circles, the, the magnitude of the fall, the magnitude of its effects, not just that I'm a sinner, that everything broke in Genesis three, everything. Well, and the systems were made by those broken people too. Like, it seems like there shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard. But I think that there's, there is part of it, I think is the way we present the gospel. Part of it is the very individualistic mindset of, I think that's huge, right? You kind of put those two things together and maybe you get the very individual, individualistic presentation of the gospel because we have a very individualistic culture. But it seems like um, my best guess is that there's something about that individualism in both the American mentality and in our presentation of the gospel that causes us not to see uh, that that systems can be broken in a way that affect people. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I, I like your approach of having it be other-centered and having truly, like some people like to hand wave it, but I'm always kind of flabbergasted when folks of faith dismiss the plea of like the love of neighbor being central to our ethic and our life and the work we do and the people we vote for and the things we support. Um, Talk to me about why love of neighbor is so important. Well, love of neighbor is so important because Jesus repeatedly in the gospels identifies it really as the core of what it means to be a follower 
of him. I mean, it's interesting, the phrase, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, in particular, that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, appears eight times in scripture. Uh, it appears in Leviticus the first time. It appears repeatedly in the Gospels, as I mentioned. It appears in Romans, Romans 13, interestingly. Uh, it appears in James and Galatians. It's kind of one of those things that like, it seems important because everybody keeps saying it. Uh, Jesus, it's recorded that Jesus said it or people with whom he engaged said it and he affirmed it. Well, and he said that sums up the whole thing. Right. Whole I think that's exactly why it's so foundational. It's like literally he's saying the anchoring peg of everything else uh, in the Old Testament is about loving God and neighbor. In other words, we can get obsessed with the to-dos and the not-to-dos. And, and there's there's validity in that. But he's trying to say, but don't lose sight of what all of that is flowing out of, because you can end up in a world where you're doing the to do's and the not and not doing the not to do's, but you're not doing it with goal with the goal of loving. Right. You can you can follow all the rules and be oriented in the wrong direction. And, and so when he tells us that the whole law and the prophet hangs on this, that the whole law and the prophet is summed up by this idea of loving God and loving neighbor, I think it's important to step back and say, you know, okay, so I, I, need to, I need to be thinking of others with this mindset when I do these things. It's not just go through the motions. It's having the right affections. It's, mm -hmm. it's having instincts that are the right instincts. And the instincts are to love, to seek the good of another. So maybe I run into a situation where I don't know the rule, uh, but my instincts are right. My affections are right. And that I think Jonathan Edwards is correct when he talks about how part of being a Christian is having our affections changed. Well, I think part of my affections and many's because of the amount, for better and worse, the amount of information we're able to have due to technology and looking at the criminal justice. And I mean, you you deal with this a lot. It's just how how glaringly, objectively wrong the the quote unquote justice system gets so many things, right? Yeah, and I think part of part of we have sort of two problems. One, we could have people who just sort of their justice instincts are wrong. They're instincts about loving are wrong. I'm somewhat less concerned about that than I am about people just don't know factually how the system operates. I found plenty of people who I think, as I talk to them, I think they're thinking wrong about criminal justice, not because they're unconcerned about their neighbors, but because when you explain to them what's happening to their neighbors, they're unaware they're shocked. Uh, and then when they learn that, they're like, well, we got to fix that. And I'm like, well, we do have to fix that. But I've been pleasantly surprised that most of the time, while, while I talked earlier about the fact that I get some resistance around the issue of loving your enemies, that's not where um, I'm seeing most of the mind change occurring as people read my book. I think where I'm seeing most of the change is... Um, in people just being unaware of how the system works. And then when they become aware, um, often their instincts are already in the right place. But now they're seeing that they're, what they thought about how the system was operating on their neighbor is very different than they thought. Are you aware of uh, Robert P. Jones's work? I am, yeah. He was an early guest uh, on the show when we relaunched during the pandemic. And one of the things he said to us, I don't remember if it was on the air, off the air, that 
um, was very encouraging and really stuck with me was that, so he had just been on a ton of national and international platforms, huge. And I was a little surprised, frankly, <laughs> that uh, he came on the show. But I do also think that COVID, he was probably just sitting in his house and he's like, well, I don't have anything the day you asked me. So sure, I'll talk to you for an hour. Sure. Um, but he said, like, no, it's great to do all these big platforms, blah, 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 like millions and millions of viewers. But I think that like your guys's audience, like the church and frankly, a lot of like where we came from, like the the white conservative, um, that section of the church needs to hear some of this stuff. So when I – there are a lot of really great resources out there that for various reasons, people who identify as conservative – they are maybe reticent or opposed to using those resources. So when, when I saw that somebody who looks like you with your theological and um, your law background, your like when somebody in the mold of you is saying this stuff, I'm encouraged that hopefully the people who are maybe unaware, it's maybe a, a misplaced sense of pride or identity. Like I've I've talked to so many people in real life where – it's kind of become clear to me that for them to say, oh, there are systemic problems, they have tied their identity so much in American or in a certain sort of political thinking that like, if they say, oh, there's a problem here, they're saying like, oh, I'm bad or I'm on the wrong team. And it's, it, no, like you don't have to take culpability in something that you didn't do. It's just to say that no, like factually, we are harming people. <laughs> like mm -hmm. the systems are made are are harming people and it would be good to change them. So I was I was very encouraged that you you wrote this book and you are taking this to a, a lot of people who who may not hear it from others. Well, I think that I think that, that there's that's really true. In other words, I'm writing as a friend to friends. Um, I think too many times books are written by outside critics. And for a lot of people, understandably, that's harder to hear. And so I'm, I'm writing as an insider. I'm not writing as a secular outsider or even a, a, a progressive Christian outsider. I'm writing as a theological conservative to my friends, the, the world I grew up in. Um, and so I'm not, I think that, I hope that that helps people hear that I'm writing as somebody who shares their theological commitments and, and trying to suggest that perhaps they misunderstand this issue. And even my choice of a publisher was strategic. I was excited about that too. I was like, yeah. I, I was impressed because we've had all sorts of authors on in under like social justice, criminal justice, various sorts of things like that. And they're with all sorts of Christian and secular publishers. But to see this coming from Crossway, I was also very encouraged because I'm like, hopefully the people who may not be hearing this elsewhere can maybe hear it here. Right. I mean, that's part of my strategy is to say, like, listen, man, I'm, I'm, I'm one of you, right? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a Crossway author, right? I'm not writing, and this is no criticism of anyone else. Sure. But, but they all have different audiences. They all have different um orientations and uh, both of the audience and of the writers. And so I chose the publisher I did, you know, God's grace, I had multiple options. And so I chose the one that, that I thought would help me reach the audience that I consider myself a part of. Um, as I said, like writing is a friend of friends. 
So in the friend of friend, I'm curious personally, as you were both like doing your legal work, I'm sure your experience played into this, but as you're preparing for this book, well, actually, let me ask, how long has this book been gestating <laughs> inside you? Well, in some ways, uh, in some ways, a long time. And in some ways, I'm a reluctant author. Okay. So I, I didn't have like some life aspiration to write a book, uh, but I had a lot of You're thoughts. not the guy at the party where it's like, hey, like, because they always say like everybody wants to write a book. You are not that guy. That wasn't, that wasn't me. I didn't, I had no aspirations to write a book or no burning desire. Um, but I had a lot of thoughts about the topic just as a result of my experience practicing law for all these years and criminal law in particular. And then in 2014, when yeah. kind of all the unrest developed as a result of what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, one of my pastors, Isaac Adams, who's now in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, he and his wife and I and my wife were out to dinner and he was like, you should write a book. You know, you're a prosecutor, you were a prosecutor, you were a defense lawyer, you got a seminary degree, like you could be helpful. And I was like, You've got a great pedigree to reach the people. Yeah, and I was kind of like, man, I'm, I'm busy, man. And so, um, but then a year later um, at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, I gave a speech um, as a Constitution Day speaker at the invitation of a friend who's on the faculty there. And so I said, okay, can I talk about whatever I want? And he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, you know, try not to get me fired. And, uh, and I said, well, no, man, I'm here to like try to get you fired. I was just kidding. And so I gave a speech entitled Why Tough on Crime is Neither Christian Nor Conservative. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah. And so I got a law journal subsequently to publish it at Notre Dame. One of the law journals there published it. Um, and that was kind of the first effort to put pen to paper on what I thought about this topic, which is both a profound gratitude and commitment to what our constitution embodies in terms of seeking justice for the criminally accused, and yet a profound disappointment at our implementation of that written commitment. Um, if, if we haven't violated in letter, at least in spirit. And so that was my first effort to sort of express that conflict that I feel. I love a provocative title. And when I, I, when I was doing my research and I saw that, I was like, oh, that's good. I got to ask him about that. <laughs> well, especially when I show up at a very conservative uh, Baptist university, it's like, you know, I'm coming, I'm coming, uh, coming in strong. And so that was my first effort to put pen to paper, but then I kind of just set it aside again. And then fast forward to 2020 and we all know what happened there after George Floyd and, and the protests turning into riots at times and just the conversations and discussions and acrimony. And so another one of my former pastors, Garrett Kell, um, who's now in um, suburban Virginia, but used to be at my church at Capitol Hill Baptist. You're in DC, right? I am, yeah. Well, okay. I live in the, the Northern Virginia area and I go to Capitol Hill Baptist. Um, and okay. one of the pastors there who is who's now a pastor in suburban Virginia, who I'm very close with, he said, he's like, you should, you should, really, you should really try to write something. And I was like, Man, I, I, you know, again, I'm, I don't have any aspirations to be a book author. I wouldn't know how to get in touch with a publisher, and I don't know what they want in any event. And and uh, so he's like, yeah, yeah, we can we can help you through all that. And so somebody gave me an example of what a book proposal looks like, and I'm like, okay, I'll write something up, and we'll see what happens. And and that's how it that's how it happened. So once you decided to do it, 2014. I was going to ask you about too what what role that played. So maybe some seeds there. 
it, from the 2014 to 2020 through the process of writing it, as you were doing research specifically with this book in mind, what were some of the things that were the most egregious to you when you were looking for statistics and stories to kind of help people who may be predisposed against seeing systemic errors? What were some of the things that you saw as, if I can hopefully just tell them the truth, they'll maybe see these things? What were some of those? It's interesting. I'll, I'll flag a couple. What Just at a macro level, when I started researching it, I was surprised that things were worse than I thought. Things were worse than I had understood them to be. In other words, I knew some things were bad. I did not appreciate even myself how bad. But then as I started researching, I was like, oh, I got lots of ammunition here. So for example, I was aware of the fact that we don't do a great job on the right to counsel for the poor, uh, despite the fact that it was been, it's been 60 years this year since we promised that uh, through Gideon, the, the Supreme Court decision of Gideon versus Wainwright. What I, I was just not aware of how awful our provision of counsel for the poor is. And that's not a knock in any way, shape, or form on the people who do those jobs. Those folks are some of the most phenomenal people out there in terms of their commitment and their sacrifice. A lot of great specific stories about them, like the individuals yeah. who – super understaffed from what I understand, yeah. but the people who actually do it. They're amazing. Like They're committed to it. They're, they're there because they believe in its importance to our, our constitutional order and to justice for the poor. Um, but we wildly understaff and underfund that system in a way that gives me grave concern about the output of the system. Because if you're arming one side with a professional, uh, a lawyer who's, who's well-resourced, and then you put someone on the other side who's under-resourced, you're, gonna, you're, you're risking getting inaccurate results. And so just as I dug into the statistics around that, about the, how the ABA has done studies in state after state, and what they found consistently is that states fund about one-third the number of lawyers that are needed to handle the caseload for the poor. You know, just they, they've done they, – it's not hard to do the math. I mean, you take the types of cases that are prosecuted in that state. You, They've done studies to, to determine how many hours it takes to handle the – average rape case or the average murder case or the average burglary case? How many hours do you need to devote to it to handle it competently? And you kind of do the math and you can figure out how many lawyers you need for that state's caseload. And consistently, only about a third of the number of lawyers needed are being provided. And, and so you could have the most committed people in the world, but if they've got three times as many cases as they can competently handle, uh, that's going to create issues. You have states like uh, New Mexico, where for any crime other than first-degree murder, so for every crime up to first, up to second-degree murder, the state pays a flat fee for your criminal defense of eight hundred dollars. I tell people my son. How many hours does that get you? <laughs> right. I mean, I tell people my son recently, my youngest son got a little car uh, wreck, and he tore the rim or the tire off the rim of his. Uh, on one of the tires of his car, he tore the tire off the rim and uh, it cost me like 700 something to fix that. And I'm like, so when someone's life is on the line, we, we will pay their lawyer in New Mexico a little more than fixing a bad tire. Mm. Um, you know, just Golly. the statistics are, are really 
bad in terms of what we're what we're doing and this creates a real issue of two systems of justice one for the rich and one for the poor it creates risks to accuracy when your lawyer can't spend enough time uh, investigating and testing the evidence and so um, it creates issues about whether people can stay in that profession long term because of the uh, because of the financial pressures it places on them personally right like most people don't get into law to get $800 a case. <laughs> I think that's fair. You know, and nor is it really, you know, it, even more than that, you have comparably senior prosecutors and defense and public defenders in the same county are paid different. So counties will often pay 20% more for a prosecutor of 15 years sen- uh, seniority than they will pay for a public defender of 15 years seniority. It's a common phenomenon I saw where there's just a gross disparity in pay. Uh, and that, again, is going to encourage people to go into one side of the profession as opposed to the other and limits their ability to stay long term. And so that was that was one of the one of the areas where I was extremely concerned and thought, man, if people knew what we're doing to poor people charged with crimes, uh, what we're doing in terms of their representation, I think that that would move people. And generally it has when I walk through those type of statistics. I think people are moved by that, that that is profoundly unfair to the poor to disarm them in defending themselves um, and being able to present their case, uh, give them someone who can spend the time investigating it. So so that's that's an area I was certainly very troubled by. I think the other area that, again, I knew was bad but didn't know how bad was the degree to which race still infects the selection of jurors, meaning in particular the degree to which African-Americans are still excluded from juries on the basis of race um, and the effect that has on, again, the decision-making where you're not getting juries that are representative of the community um, and you're, you're having judgments made by people who are not a cross-section of that community. And so, um, again, I knew that was bad. I knew it was an issue. I did not know how deep-seated it was, both historically and contemporaneously. And as I began to d- dig into it, I was even myself shocked at how bad it really was. Well, in those two things in particular, we have covered previously on the show both um, economic, the the economically oppressed, and the folks who are on the lower end of that, and the the racial issues as well. And it's a frustrating and heartbreaking and infuriating reality that many people of faith seem to be, for whatever reason, um, maybe disinclined to be initially aligned up to try to like be open to the poor, open to people who have been historically oppressed. Uh, maybe their default is suspicion or like, oh, I, I don't want to hear that. Like what has been like for the people that you've shown, hey, no, like these are the hard numbers. What kind of responses have you gotten to those? Yeah, I wouldn't say that my experience has been that Christians are resistant to that. I think really the bigger issue is it, uh, if there's bipartisan agreement on anything in our country, perhaps it's that we don't need more lawyers and that we, <laughs> and that we don't need more criminal defense lawyers. And so it's kind of one of those issues where it's hard. You don't really have any champions 
uh, for that issue. You don't have really anybody who's out there running on a platform of, I want more adequate representation for the poor. It just, it's not a constituency that has an advocate. But again, when, when I talk to people about it and I, t- I try to walk them through, as I try to do in my book, how this affects accuracy, that does move people. In other words, when people see stories of exonerations, my experience has been they're appalled by it. When people have spent 10, 20, or 30, 40 even years in prison for crimes they didn't commit, um, I think I found people to be, you know, whether Christians or not Christians, to be very moved by those type of injustices. And what I'm trying to No, if you have any humanity at all, that's appalling, right? Of course, right. And Or would you say that there's like a 2 to 4% error on people sentenced to death? Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the, the rate. I mean, those are the cases where we devote the greatest resources and yet we know we're getting it wrong between two and 4% of the time. Uh, and that's hundreds of people. It, yeah. Yeah. It's hundreds of people, literally. And so, and so, you know, when people see those exonerations, people are moved in my experience, Christian and non-Christian alike. And what I'm trying to explain in the book is to say, let's back up and talk about why that's happening, that these are not mysteries uh, for the most part, like we we can go and back and diagnose what's uh, what's occurring here. There's been studies around this. There's been deep dives into these cases to try to figure out what went wrong. And what I'm trying to say is, if you share, as most people, almost everyone I've ever met d- does, share a concern about these wrongful convictions, then then you should be equally concerned about the things that are contributing to them. And let me try to talk to talk about what some of those are in my book so that people can under see the connection between being committed to due process, being committed to counsel for the poor, being committed to uh, picking jurors without regard to race, uh, it, that if, they, if they'll commit themselves to those things, uh, we can do a lot to eliminate the wrongful convictions. I don't want to get terribly deep, deep into the weeds of the specific legal stuff. But I I was very interested in your covering of the plea bargaining system and how that is like, that seems to be so clearly, like if anybody thinks about that for a moment, it's like, wow, there's, this is kind of built for, if abuse is not the exact right word, like this is built to fail. I think that's absolutely right. I What I say is everybody should hate American style plea bargain. I don't care if you're a law and order conservative or a bleeding heart liberal. I don't care where you fall on the spectrum. You should hate American style plea bargaining. And my view is if you don't hate it, it's only because you don't know what's going on. Because once you know what's going on, you'll hate it. In fact, if I always tell Unless you you own a prison that's making (laughs) a lot of money. Maybe. Unless you invest in prisons. Right. Other than prison investors. And so you know, what I tell folks, if you're going to read one chapter of my book, read chapter 11. It's the story about plea bargaining. And it's the most important chapter because 94 to 97% of cases are resolved through guilty pleas, not through jury trials. And so if you want to see- Oh, I'm glad I picked the right chapter that yeah, asked so you. If you about. want to know, you know, what's happening in almost every criminal case, it's not like what you see on TV where everything ends in a dramatic trial. Most of it results in boring plea negotiations. But, but what's happening in that plea process, in that plea bargaining process, is, is grievously unjust. And, and it is, and in fact, it only operates through injustice because you have a constitutional right to a jury. Mm-hmm. And so 
what would cause 94 to 97% of people to give up that jury trial right and plead guilty? I mean, even if you know you're guilty, uh, why wouldn't you play for fumbles? Right. <laughs> and why? Well, and, the re- and there's a reason. <laughs> right. And there is a reason, which is that we either threaten people with um, grossly excessive uh penalties, sentences, if they go to trial and lose, or we offer them grossly lenient, unjustly lenient sentences, if they'll give up their their right to a trial. But one way or the other, we have to induce them with something that's unjust, either threatening them with an unjustly severe sentence, or inducing them with an unjustly lenient sentence. And and so regardless of whether you are law and order conservative or bleeding heart liberal, that should be a problem because if we're offering people unjustly lenient sentences, my law and order conservative friends are going to hate that. And if we're threatening people with unjustly severe sentences, well, the bleeding heart liberal people should be concerned about that. I mean, literally everybody should hate the fact that we built a plea bargaining system that traffics in injustice. Well, and the, the pathway to a jury trial. I mean, most people know in my experience, like, oh, criminal justice system is broken. But like you see is because the high profile cases are the ones you hear about the most, you see how long ostensibly these people with money and attention and maybe some juice to kind of move things forward, how long they take, how long they take from crime to getting into court the first day and sometimes how long they take to resolve and and all these things. Why – for somebody with no legal background um, and just knowing about things through pop culture and a little bit of articles here and there, why does it take so long? Well, part of – there's a constitutional guarantee of a right to a speedy trial, but – there's not an incentive for the prosecutor to push it forward to a speedy trial if they can lock you up without bail before your trial. Well, that goes with the plea bargaining too. Like the right. bail system's pretty jacked up too, right? Yeah. Well, absolutely. And that plays into how so many cases end up in plea bargains because if you can lock someone up and force them to start serving their sentence before they're ever convicted and then well, – What's uh, your stories about people with like – minor, minor charges with a bail set too high for them because they're poor, they're sitting in jail for months maybe. Years. And like years. like they can be in jail for years and not even have like day one of a trial and they could be completely innocent. Yeah. I mean I it's going through who knows what in jail. Yeah, it's interesting. I posted something on I don't remember if it was on Reels or on Facebook or something a, a few weeks ago, where I was describing this scenario of what happens and how bail is used to coerce guilty pleas. And I had several people comment in the comments, like, "Man, that's exactly what happened to me." And they talked about the ramifications that had for their lives and for their families and the way it upended things. It's a it's a real problem. The fact that we can lock people up and make them start serving their sentence before we ever convict them of anything. And that creates incredible pressure when the prosecutor then comes to you months later and says, hey, if you just plead guilty, we'll let you out on time served right now. Or you can wait for your trial, but that could take another year or so. And with and, all the economic realities and pressures of, of everything being so expensive and the way commerce and our economy works, you can't really afford to do that. 
Yeah, no, exactly. People have rent to pay and they're getting evicted from their house and their kids are getting farmed out and they're risking sexual assault while they're in prison and they're not mm-hmm. getting medical treatment maybe for a situation that they're facing. And so it just creates incredible pressure to plead when you've put people in jail and forced them to start serving their sentence before you convict them. And that's the reality of what's happening when we deny people bail. Read chapter 11. Read chapter exactly. 11. Exactly. Everybody read chapter 11. Check it out. Um what is your sense of hope? Towards the end, you talked about what we can do. Give, give, give me the short version. Give our listeners what if somebody is aware or unaware, they read the book or they listen to this episode, they, they start to get fired up tangibly besides share this knowledge with other people, which we definitely should do. Hopefully kind of get some collective momentum. But with whatever collective momentum there is, what can we do? Go serve on a jury. Like the, the single most common question I get as a lawyer over my la- other last 27 years of being a lawyer is people coming up to me saying, how can I avoid jury service? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and what I say to folks is like, man, if you turn that down, um, someone less just than you might take the opportunity. You know, we are unique among people of the world in the history of the world who have an opportunity to play a part in administering justice. I mean, I talk in my book about 3,285 people since August of 1889 have been exonerated after having been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. And those could have been avoided if one person on that jury uh, said, I'm not going to convict the evidence is too shaky. Because in this country, a single person can hang a jury, can prevent a jury from convicting. And so you have a real opportunity either to do justice for a crime victim by helping make sure that the a fair verdict is returned or protecting a falsely accused. Um, it's, a, it's an enormous responsibility, but also a privilege that we have in this country that we get to stand between the people, our fellow citizens and the state. The state can't throw you in jail just because the state wants to throw you in jail. They've got to convince your fellow citizens that you deserve it. And it's an enormous opportunity to play a part in the justice system. And so I tell folks, don't, don't, when that jury serve summons comes, don't, don't like groan and, and uh, be disappointed. <laughs> view it as, a, seriously, like view it as an enormous opportunity. No, I know that a couple months ago I got one and I was like, yeah, all right. Okay. One of the best things anybody's ever told me about my book is that when they finished reading it, a few weeks after they finished reading it, a jury summons came in the mail and they were excited. And I was like, man, that right there, if if that's all I accomplish is encouraging Christians who are committed to justice, um, encouraging them to be enthusiastic about their opportunity to be part of that justice through jury service, then then I'm a happy person in terms of what I've accomplished through the book. As far as organizing or voting, what sorts of questions ought we to ask of people who are seeking our vote in support? in regards to criminal justice, that what are the sorts of questions we could ask? What are the sorts of things to look for on websites or platforms? What are some positive and negative things that we can look for when it comes to a candidate who seeks our support uh, in relation to criminal justice? Well, the great thing about criminal justice is that you have candidates who are running only on the issue of criminal justice, right? Unlike a lot of topics where you've got to vote for a candidate who holds issues on everything from 
schools to economic policy to foreign policy to highways to job creation to criminal justice you know you when it comes to your local district attorney you're voting on one issue you're voting on criminal justice and so you can focus in on that issue i mean things i'd want to know are you know what is your office's record on false convictions you know how many how many what is has your office ever been sanctioned for failing to turn over evidence of innocence in violation of the constitutional obligation um, is your does your office have a unit that goes back and looks at convictions um, later on to determine whether or not there might have been a wrongful conviction I mean just things just simple things like that uh, you know you can often find information about it and it'll tell you something about the commitment of of that particular prosecutor to ensuring accuracy in how they carry out their job, and that's what we should really be most concerned about. Is I want a prosecutor who's gonna who's gonna strive for and be committed to accurate verdicts, accurate outcomes, even if that means admitting that they made a mistake, that they'll be willing to make it right. I love that. That's that's very good. Well, Matt, any last uh, anything that you would like to leave? folks with personally as as an encouragement as a charge in relation to these things other than check it out again i'm very excited get this for your your very conservative relative who you may have had a hard time <laughs> having these conversations with elsewise uh crossway it's written by a lawyer with a theology degree at mark devers church like this is this is going to be a, hopefully a very successful uh a resource yeah, Reforming Criminal Justice to Christian Proposal is the title. And what I'd leave people with is this, that that we need to both strive for justice now as Christians in this life, but also recognize that our hope is in justice in the end, that it is good and right to continue to push for our system to be better. And I want it to be better. I wrote 356 pages of a book about how I want it to be better. But I also want to always bring us back to as Christians that our hope is the hope we confess in our churches across this ages every Sunday. When we recite, recite the Nicene Creed and we say, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That however far short our system falls now as Christians, we're not without hope. If someone goes unpunished in this life, we're not without hope. No murderer, no abuser, no corrupt judge, no incompetent defense lawyer, no dirty prosecutor, or even honorable prosecutor will have the final say. God will set all wrongs right. And so we can have hope in the face of discouragement at times over how our justice system operates. We can have hope knowing that no crime will go unpunished in the end. God will set it all right. And he can, for those who are mistreated by the system, he can restore and he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And so I think we can bring as Christians a unique perspective to criminal justice because we are motivated by our faith to strive for justice and assured by our faith that justice will ultimately be rendered. I appreciate that. That's, yeah, especially when you get to, you see those stories about people that have just been so abused. <laughs> by yeah. the system that, that that's not the end. It's not the end. God will set it right. It doesn't mean that there's no urgency. We need to yeah. no, it's, to it's the right urgently balance. change these as much as right. possible, but it's the right the, balance the of, of striving for justice now and trusting 
that there will be justice in the end. That's that's excellent. Um, so Matt, uh, before I let you go here, substance shout outs. What has Matt Martin's been enjoying, watching, listening to? I don't know if you're a, you're a book guy, movie guy, music guy, podcast articles. What is what has been enjoyable and or edifying to you recently here that you'd like to commend to folks? Well, you can, you can pick a couple if you like. I don't know if it's edifying, but I'm like a I'm a, a career or a lifelong watcher of Survivor. I've watched every episode nice. of every season since the middle of season one, so I'm enjoying. I like the, it. Uh, I'm enjoying. The what cuts. are they now? Season like thirty or forty I, something? No, it's. I think it's like forty-five. Nice. Uh, so what they're up to now? So my wife and I always watch that on Wednesday nights. So I always enjoy that. I'm reading. I'm reading right now. Uh, two uh, books that I'm really enjoying. One is Christopher Watkin, Biblical Critical Theory. Um, I got to meet Christopher at uh, Evangelical Theological Society's annual meeting a few weeks ago out in San Antonio. He, he was gracious and spent like an hour just talking with me. And it was just fascinating to talk to someone of his intellect. And the book is tremendous. Just one Christianity Today's book of the year. Uh, so I'd highly recommend that. It's it's a really great overview of scripture. I'm also reading uh, David David Blight's uh, biography of Frederick Douglass, uh, which is really interesting and a, an amazing figure in American history, somebody who I didn't know enough about. And uh, this book, I think, won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it did. Yeah, that was my previous co-host, Trevor. That was one of his favorites. He bought that for a lot of people. And that's one that I will either read or listen to at some point. It's just a little uh, it's intimidating. <laughs> and then the last thing I've been reading recently, so, you know, I'm kind of like the reading multiple books at one time person. I'm reading Bono's uh, nice. Uh, a biography called Surrender. I actually just went out to the Sphere in Vegas back in October. Oh, there you see, go. To see you too, my favorite band. And uh, so when I came home, I, I had had this book sitting there since last Christmas when my wife gave it to me. I'm like, I got to read this. So I got it out and started reading it, really enjoying that. Very nice. I love getting a little bit of a personality from a guest too. That's How's the Sphere? <laughs> Amazing. I mean, if you can do it, uh, I actually like flew out there on frequent flyer miles that I had and the tickets, the tickets are, you know, are, are manageable. They're not, um, you can get them on StubHub and, and there's really no bad seats in the entire place because what it's, I hear. it's just this massive screen. And what I think I didn't appreciate was for as big as that, that wall is of the dome uh, that this, that is the screen, it is super high definition so that the visuals behind the band are really amazing. So it was a great time. My wife and I went out there back in October. Very cool. Well, I'm I am delighted to hear that. Uh, and the Survivor bit is great too. That's <laughs> I don't even know if I've ever watched a full season. I, I thought it was a very interesting um, premise, and clearly, like it's been running strong for yeah. many years and even more seasons. But uh, that's excellent. Yeah, it came out the year my oldest son was born. He's 24 and it's still going. <laughs> so Yeah, I remember when it started and then did all the spinoffs die? Is it pretty much just the main one or are there yeah, many spinoffs as well? There's no spinoffs off the of Survivor, but it in some ways spawned many of the other uh, okay. of the other type of reality shows because it was the one that really caught on on mainstream networks. So there's obviously been ones before it, but more on like cable uh, channels like MTV and otherwise. So this was the one sure. that really caught on on the 
on the regular networks and <laughs> everything everything after that from the amazing race to to whatever is probably in some way a child or grandchild of survivor well very nice well matt thank you for your time i'm glad that we were finally able to do this and genuinely i'm i'm excited that you connected with the folks at crossway and you even got a former guest of the show karen swallow prior on the back i love seeing such a wide variety of people like endorse something and i i truly hope that a resource like this gets into the right hands and hopefully breaks down some of these unnecessary uh artificial barriers to to make genuine progress because like you said this is this is clear and plain gospel stuff this is like the love of neighbor jesus said on this rests all the law and the prophets so let's let's get to work Let's do it. Yeah. And listen to your readers out there. If you, uh, if you read it and you're encouraged by it or you have questions, my email address is on my website. Send me an email. I get an email at least every day from somebody. Uh, phenomenal stories that people share with me. So I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. I'll be sure to put that uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Matt, and hope, uh, hope you have a good holiday season here. You too. there you have it. That was my conversation with Matt Martins. I was so encouraged by his heart for the poor, for the marginalized, for ethnic minorities who get targeted by these these systems, our systems. Um, I was very encouraged by this. So we hope you were as well. This might be a really good resource to get for the, uh, the staunch conservative in your life, perhaps. It's a great resource written by a guy with <laughs> kind of like Saul, like a, um, a, a bulletproof pedigree. It's only facts along with the Bible. So I, I'm really hoping this is a resource that can kind of tear down some walls of resistance that that are maybe put up unnecessarily by folks who maybe have bad <laughs> motives. So I'm, I'm so happy to see Matt out here just encouraging the folks in his camp to be honest with themselves and to seek justice because God is a God of justice. Um, So that was very encouraging. So if you enjoyed the show, you want to join us in support, the very, very best way you can support the substance is by sharing it with a friend. Um, We got our end of the year numbers with our Spotify wrapped. A lot of people are texting or messaging the show to each other with direct links. Love that. If you have friends, siblings, cousins, family members that you you share this with, I love it. Keep that up. Uh, share it on social media. Try not to be too passive aggressive. This is, I think, this is a really great resource that some people really um, could benefit from hearing. So try to do that with love. But yeah, share up the show. And if you have the ability and interest and want to join us financially in support, you can do that on Patreon at patreon.com slash the substance pod. We have a couple different tiers. Folks can get editor Dave's interviews that he does for his Substack early, a little audio podcast. Those are really great. Um, and you can also vote to influence future topics for the show. So we're over there on Patreon and 
if it's the time of year and you're just feeling generous and you don't want to sign up for a monthly thing and you just want to send us a little gift, please do that on Cash App. You can send us something at dollar sign the substance pod. You want to throw us a little bit of cash for Christmas? We'll uh, we'll take that and we'll say thank you. We are so yeah. We are planning 2024. We're very excited to see what is ahead of us. And if you want to be a part of that in any way, we uh we love to have you. So thank you for coming back to the show. If you're still listening, thank you for listening all the way through. Probably got some Dave bloopers here coming up. And uh, hope you guys have a wonderful holiday season. And we will see you next time on the Substance. I understand our obligation is to love even in enforcing the law. I said, behold, he who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new. That right there is the best news you will ever hear. Sorry there, Dave. We can go and back and go serve on a jury. Yeah, Yeah, same. And this, I, I, I agree. Like what you were trying to achieve with something different. I feel like this is actually very different than my other ones. So. Great job. Talking points are good, but it's also yeah. like, go get the book. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> go get the well, and their your crossway podcast too is basically like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, yeah. which I think is great. Um, especially as like a primer. Like if you're yeah. going out to these conservative institutions or churches, be like, yeah. here's my message. But I also yeah. like this, like our audience really is kind of all over the spectrum, which I like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up and my former co-host, super conservative, um, non-denominational, essentially a Baptist church. We went to yeah. uh, John MacArthur Arm Seminary, yeah. um, stuff like that. And just the last several years, I don't really think much, if any of our actual theological um, positions or commitments have changed. It's just we've seen true things that have caused us to to care about and to act and to advocate in certain ways that some people see as not part of the monolith of the conservative identity and it's just like where's the where's the rub guys it can be very challenging i feel like we've got very similar experiences so